snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. Jin Yong might sound like an unassuming name to foreign audiences. Yet in China, he has created a cultural currency roughly equal to that of Harry Potter and Star Wars combined. Born in 1924 into a scholarly family from East China's Zhejiang province, Jin Yong, whose birth name is Cha Liang Yong, has always been an avid reader and a rebellious, free-spirited individual since an early age. In 1946, he joined Da Kong Bao, a Shanghai news agency, as a journalist, and moved to its Hong Kong-based division two years later. In 1955, he published his first martial arts novel, *The Book and the Sword*, or in Chinese, *Shu Jian En Chou Lu*. For me, writing fictions is pleasant, while writing editorials is really painful. It's merely a job. From the mid 1950s to early 70s, Jin Yong has produced a total of 15 pieces, whose timelines stretch from the 6th century BC to the 18th century. Blurring the boundaries between fiction and real history, the writer has created an imaginary Jianghu, a marginalized part of society that. Followed its own code of conduct and reveres the power of martial arts. Considered one of China's most beloved and best-selling authors still alive, Jin Yong is now 94 years old and lives in seclusion. Meanwhile, his books continue to inspire numerous TV shows, movies, comic books, anime, and video games. However, due to the complexity and ingeniousness of his writings, Jin Yong's novels have long been deemed as impossible to translate. This year, *A Hero Born*, the first installment of his legendary series *Legends of the Condor Heroes*, widely known in China as *Shu Diao Yingxiong Zhuan*, was released in English for the first time. This landmark publication also marks the first trade edition of any of Jin Yong's works in English. And I think that although the setting and some of the details about these stories obviously are very Chinese, they're rooted in thousands of years of Chinese culture, but the emotional kind of world of these stories is very universal and very easy to understand for a Western reader. So in today's program, Shuri talks with Anna Homewood, a Chinese and Swedish into English literary translator, to discuss Chinese martial arts fiction, as well as the universal appeal of Jin Yong's works in this genre. And as the translator of the Condor Hero series, what drew her to this Chinese masterpiece? Hi, Anna. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Before we talk about your translation, we talk about Jin Yong. Could you tell us how did you come to learn Chinese? 
Well, so I uh, grew up in a multilingual family. I grew up bilingual, uh, and I've always had an interest in languages. Mm -hmm. Then when I was a student, I had the opportunity to travel in China, um, and I really loved it. I thought it was a really fascinating country, and I became really interested in history and also Chinese characters and how they worked and things. So I decided that once I graduated, um, I would start learning Chinese. So I started... Um, learning as a master's student uh, mm -hmm. and that was 10 years ago now so um, it was mainly through my interest of other cultures and also languages I think uh, Chinese is really fascinating uh, language especially when you don't understand what characters are and you can just see these amazing sort of symbols so um, once I started learning Chinese I've always also had an interest in literature and writing so once I got to a kind of advanced enough level with my Chinese, it seemed quite natural to combine the two interests and um, work as a literary translator. So that's how I started. It sounds interesting. So as a literature translator, you must be aware about the popularity of martial arts fiction, or as we address it in China, a wuxia fiction. So could you explain to our listeners what wuxia is as a literary genre? Should we consider it as a Chinese equivalent of Western chivalric romance? That's a very good comparison. I would say that wuxia fiction is often set in a kind of historical setting, although not always. There is contemporary martial arts fiction. Mm -hmm. But a lot of um, martial arts fiction is also set deliberately in the past. And uh, it has, so it has a lot in common with the Western historical romances, like Walter Scott or um, the Arthurian legends, or that kind of thing. And, and because obviously a big part of what martial arts fiction is about is the idea of fighting. So in the, in the instance of martial arts fiction, obviously uh, this is rooted in Chinese martial arts, which is fighting is not necessarily about aggression, but it can be about aggression. I think it's very important to realize that it's not always just about this kind of sometimes we have this very idealized picture of martial arts as something that's only ever um, some kind of peaceful act about defense and uh, the purity of the philosophy but when you read a martial arts fiction there are a lot of people fighting for good and bad reasons but in the bigger picture of what martial arts fiction the kind of moral universe of these stories it's often about the sort of heroes in these stories are fighting for good and fighting for justice. So they have a sort of, they're often fighting against the kind of, the bad fighters who maybe have less pure intentions or reasons for fighting, but the martial arts fighters, the heroes will always be fighting for either to save the country or to for the honor of their school of martial arts or to save China from the foreign invasion, or they have like very noble reasons for fighting. I would say that the, the part of the interest in the stories is not just the fighting itself, but why the characters are fighting, the kind of emotions and the reasons for the, the honor and the love and all that kind of stuff. And I think that although the setting and some of the details about these stories obviously are very Chinese, they're rooted in thousands of years of Chinese culture, but the emotional kind of world of these stories is very universal and very easy to understand for a Western reader. Mm -hmm. um, because it has a lot in common with our own uh, romances and maybe a bit of fantasy fiction as well. This kind of the idea that you, as long as the character is doing good, mm -hmm. um, then the fighting isn't isn't a bad thing. Yeah.
I mean, you know, there are a lot of Chinese people get acquainted with、uh, wuxia or martial arts novels, not just by reading books, but also by seeing these fictions alive on big or small screens. You know, such as TV shows, movies, animes, video games. So, in your opinion, why does martial art fiction has such a massive, or, or if I put it in this way, it's a nearly cult following in the Chinese-speaking areas? Well, yes, exactly. I think the, the this martial arts storytelling has、um, been very successful in all kinds of mediums. So, yeah, it's not just in the fiction, like you say, it's big screen, small screen, video games. And I think it's because fundamentally, the very heart of the story is very kind of universal. And there's something, you know, this kind of good versus evil, and like、mm-hmm. you want the righteous hero, and the fact that there is fighting and action and. It has the potential to cross over these different mediums very nicely, so you can present the same story、um, through these different methods.、Uh, I think that、um, you know sometimes there's not every kind of storytelling that fits so well as a film or fits so well as a video game, but、mm-hmm. martial arts fiction has a lot in common with kind of other fantasy genres or things like that. That its、um, its appeal is in kind of creating a whole universe. In which these characters live and fight for what they think is good and fall in love and things like that, and that kind of universe that they're in, whether it's in Song Dynasty China or you could even have martial arts fiction in a contemporary Western setting if you wanted to. There's no, there's no limits on that, but that it's about kind of creating a, a world for the characters to、mm-hmm. be fighting and、um, living in that makes it so good for、uh, all kinds of medium, all kinds of storytelling techniques. Yeah. So now let's go back to Jin Yong, one of the finest wuxia writers in the Chinese-speaking world. I'm curious about when was your first encounter with his novels. Well, I think because when I was learning Chinese, I met a lot of young Chinese people, students in in the UK, or when I was in China, young people who told me about Jin Yong that he was their favorite writer. So I heard a lot about him well before I could even think about. Reading him myself,、mm-hmm. I think the fact that obviously Jin Yong is such a integral part of a lot of people's childhood, and、um, people have a very special connection to his writing because they often encounter his stories when they are at an age when they are particularly open, when stories have the potential to really kind of get inside their heart and their head.、Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people told me about Jin Yong from very early on. I don't really remember a time when I was learning Chinese that I didn't have people telling me about、um, Jin Yong. Then it was just a matter of me kind of getting to the point where I could read it myself, because at the time it was very hard to get hold of any English translations.、Mm-hmm. Um, when I was learning Chinese, I, I was aware that there were some, but they had gone out of print largely, or were very expensive or difficult to get hold of. So、um, I first started reading him in Chinese rather than in English. Wow, that's cool. So, what's your first impression? I was very surprised, actually, because、um, I thought that reading Jin Yong would be a bit like reading.、Uh, maybe for me, as a foreigner who is, doesn't speak Chinese、uh, as a native speaker, I thought that I might experience that it would be like reading a textbook. You know, like I, I have to sit down and with the dictionary、mm-hmm. and check all the characters, and it would be something very kind of serious. But、uh, what I found was actually I got very carried up in the story very quickly, and I realised that I didn't need to understand every character because I I kind of just got into the story and then I was like turning the pages. So I think that it was the enjoyment that I got, the fact that it was、um, fun to read, that kind of surprised me the most. And I、um, and I 
suddenly I realized, oh, that's why he's so popular. You know, for me, it doesn't have to be like sitting down to maybe read something like Shakespeare and be very serious and like take it and think that oh, this is going to take a lot of studying for me to do because that's a bit like for us um, British students when we go to school and we have to read Shakespeare you know it feels very important but very kind of difficult and you have to take it very seriously and then um, I realized that with Gignon uh, even though I'm not a native Chinese speaker I could feel the same excitement as a Chinese do when they read him and that that was the thing that made me feel confident that he could be translated into English as well and that Western readers would enjoy reading him too. As long as they had a good translation, then I was sure that they could be captured just mm-hmm. as I was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting because I, I remember there's a quite old saying by Hong Kong translator and writer Lin Yiliang. And I remember he once said, there are Jinyong fans wherever there are Chinese people. I think it's kind of, yeah. you know, an exaggeration, but I still think, you know, when we look back the sales volume of Jin Yong's novels, I think in 2004, China's Central Television said his books sell about 100 million copies. And yet some people estimate the sales volume might reach 300 million. So in your opinion, what's the appeal of his works makes him the best-selling Chinese author alive? Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, there's a combination of factors. I think that it's partly to do with history of when he was writing and the fact that Jiyong, he started writing in the 50s up to the 70s. And I think that because his popularity was first kind of really took off in more like overseas Chinese communities or in um, places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, before his popularity became quite as widespread in mainland China. And I think that there's something about like the period in which he was writing, people were hungry for stories. And I think that there was a um, time when television and film were first starting to develop. So Jin Yong was writing in a style in this newspaper, these kind of very action-filled stories that I think really kind of to grab the imagination and attention of readers. Um, and start begin to competing with the alternative TV and film in a way that, uh, you know, he's he's obviously writing with that a little bit in mind to kind of make sure it's exciting. And he, uh, Ji Yong's obviously connecting also into an older tradition of the oral storyteller and the idea of the the kind of serialized, very long, like the classical Chinese novels, they were often in these huge stories with many, many episodes where you could keep going back if you had old storyteller came to the village, you know, and maybe if you missed one or two episodes, it's okay, you can come back in and quickly catch up with the story and still feel excited. And I think that Ji Yong is very, like, good at capturing that tradition of Chinese storytelling and kind of putting it in a little modern spin on it for a modern age. So mm-hmm. when... um he first started writing, I think that he really created a new kind of craze for the martial arts fiction. As I understand it, although martial arts fiction has its own very long history, he kind of like gave the genre a new life after the Second World War. And it obviously resonated with readers also to find something that was so kind of genuinely Chinese, um, something that was had its setting in a kind of Chinese past. So I think it's all these factors that have made him to be so popular. And then once, of course, once he started to be more widely read in mainland China, then I think that his status was already confirmed at the top. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I remember, you know, in his interview with NPR, you know, 
Boston University professor Patrice Liu. He kind of compared Jin Yong's popularity and relevance with Jin Austin. So I don't know what's your take on this. Do you think he has this kind of influence on Chinese society, Chinese culture, as Jin Austin did to the British society? Well, it's funny because、uh, I think the Jane Austen comparison is an interesting one because Jane Austen hasn't been popular continuously since since she was writing. In fact, her books have gone up and down very much in popularity in the West. I think it's easy to look at Jane Austen's status now and think that she's always been that popular. But actually, for example, in the Victorian period in the UK, she wasn't that widely read. There's something about Jane Austen's writing that has been rediscovered in a modern, like she, elements of her stories fit with a modern、um, taste.、Mm-hmm. I think with Jin Yong, he has been continuously popular, and that's a different thing. That's an even harder thing to do. So I would say his status is higher than Jane Austen's is in Britain because, in a way, he's never it's never dipped for 60, 70 years now. It's been completely consistently popular. So、uh, yeah, I think Jin Yong has achieved something even even more amazing. Yeah, and everything he he has ever written has been deeply imprinted within Chinese culture. Because whenever you're talking about names like Guo Jing or Huang Rong, people in China immediately know what you're talking about. Exactly, I think Jin、uh, Yong's writing has already entered into a kind of collective imagination, and I think that his stories almost don't really just belong to him; they belong to the whole of the Chinese people. And And by that I mean the whole, the diversity of the Chinese culture, because you know the fact that he is so popular with、um, Chinese who've even grown up in America, as well as、uh, Chinese people who have just grown up in the in a Chinese-speaking environment. He is equally popular in both both of those communities and the variety of Chinese communities all over the world. So I think that that's something quite special. And in a way, I think that the, when stories or characters become so iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will kind of take those characters, and they will almost create a new life for them in their own imaginations. Anna Homewood sharing with Shuri her thoughts on Chinese martial arts fiction, as well as her attraction to novelist Jin Yong's books. Coming up, reader of、um, Jin Yong's writing in English, they don't necessarily pick up on all of the references or see all the layers of what's going on, the same、mm-hmm. as a ch- Chinese reader would. But it doesn't mean that they don't enjoy it, and they're not getting something out of it. And then maybe it's actually by giving them access to reading it that they can then read more and build on that, and increase their curiosity and keep building on their knowledge to become a reader who has more sophisticated understanding of elements of classical Chinese thinking. More to come. Stay tuned. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. I know you have already translated the first instrument of Legends of Kanto Heroes. So could you introduce the storyline to our listeners? You know, of course, without spoiling the plot too much. So、um, Kanto Heroes, the series starts in the year twelve hundred or twelve o five, or if you're going to be very specific. And、um, at that period, the Song Empire was already. Being pushed further south from where the center of kind of power, further south into southern China, where the environment is more wild and it's a bit more、um, humid and hot, and there are lakes and there's this is rice country. And the Song Empire, because it's being attacked by the Jin Empire in the north,、um, but there is also a suggestion that the Song Empire is itself 
the, the people in power around the emperor are corrupt and that they are, in effect, taking money to hand over parts of the empire to the gene. So we have this, the fundamental idea is that there is um, these two very patriotic martial arts fighters. They're simple farmers, or they've moved from the north down with the empire into the south. Um, but they have been training martial arts kind of a little bit in secret and uh, mm-hmm. they are very outraged by the situation that the, the Song Empire is crumbling um, and they want to fight to save China from invasion from the north. Mm-hmm. So, but when they, uh, these two young men, they, uh, they have young wives who are pregnant, um, but in the very beginning of the story, disaster strikes and the women end up being taken to different parts of the outside of the Chinese Empire and the two babies that are born to those two women, they grow up in very different circumstances. And this, mm-hmm. the Legends of the Condor Heroes is about those two babies. Uh, when they grow up, the two sons, what their kind of uh, interaction and uh, and also this backdrop of uh, who's going to save China and who's on the right side and who's in the wrong side. <laughs> yeah, but I wondered, because Jun has written 15 fictions, why did you choose Legends of the Condor Heroes to start? Well, part of it was that the historical setting of uh, Legends of the Condor Heroes, although Western readers don't know that much about Song Dynasty history, but they do know quite a bit about the Mongols. Like uh, in Western culture, we, I remember when I was studying history, we wrote and talked a lot about in the same period of history in Europe, people were very scared of the Mongols and they mm-hmm. saw them kind of coming closer and closer. And I think that that feeling, because Xinjiang's writing is written from the Chinese perspective, so the, although he has a lot of sympathy in the Mongol, the characters, um, Genghis Khan and all of his um, followers, Xinjiang writes them as proper characters. They're not just like, um, they're not just a sort of shadow or a caricature or something to be scared of. He goes into the characters and he shows the kind of the dynamics and it's not just a black and white story, but it is still fundamentally um, Jiyong's writing from the Chinese perspective. And so you feel that kind of like fear and the the context of the growing Mongol empire. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's something emotionally that Western people can connect with from our own history. Um, so that was one important factor. Uh, and then the other factor was that I asked a lot of my Chinese friends, which was their personal favorite. Um, And a lot of people say So I thought, well, if that's the one that Chinese people themselves pick as their favorite, then that's a good sign as well to start with a kind of classic. Yeah, that's true. And when I started to read the Jinyong Legends of the Kondo Heroes was also my top choice. So it's the same answer here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, for me, well, when I got my hand on the translation, one thing I really worry about is how you translate the movements. Because as we all know, Qin Yong's novels, they are very action-packed. And different martial arts schools, they have different styles. And sometimes I think Qin Yong can get really metaphysical and philosophical in depicting certain movements. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, how do you visualize those moves and feats without making them look too supernatural? <laughs> Well, it's um, it's difficult because uh, sometimes the the descriptions are actually when you're reading it as a translator as opposed to as a reader, you realize that a lot of what's happening is part is to do with your imagination. The yeah. words are designed to give you a picture, not to give you necessarily really detailed specifics. Mm-hmm. So the challenge for me was to try and recreate the feeling that you were like recreate the picture in your mind without worrying too much about whether or not the 
how to you know translate that into very very specific like the hand is where is the wrist and all that sort of stuff so I I was a bit troubled by it at first and then I realized that the best thing would be to is to stick closely to what how Jinyoung is describing it and just to try and make sure that um I paid attention to the pace um <laughs> more than so I didn't want to over explain what was happening I didn't want to add in my own extra interpretations or like extra information to make it clear what was happening in a fight scene if it wasn't there in the original still leave the space for the reader's imagination to picture the scene and then also to just make sure that in the where if it was reading very fast in the because in the chinese i think when you're reading a fight scene you get kind of caught up in the in the action so yeah you, you kind of often go very fast through it and you're creating this image in your head and i thought well i don't want the english reader to be stopped all the time like always stopping and starting and feeling like oh it's very heavy and difficult to understand what's happening so i i thought the best thing is to pay attention to make sure that it reads just as fast in the english and it's light and you feel it's exciting and that's where i put my energy a bit more than than the idea of like researching was this particular move a real kung fu move and what exactly is the mechanics of what's happening because a lot of the stuff also jinong completely made up yeah it's that's true imagination it's not like um real some of them are real and some of them are not but i i realized well i think that that's not really the point in a way the point is that to create the excitement and the feel of of reading um the action rather than being so bog down in the detail that then it doesn't become fun anymore. I thought that would be a very pointless uh, way to approach the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, as a Chinese, I really, really enjoy reading the English version of Condor Heroes, but I'm kind of worried about the reaction of my Western counterpart because unlike Amy Tan or Celeste Ng, you know, both are super popular Chinese writers of all, the Jiang's novels have some elements they are very Chinese-grounded. Because you can see he used ancient Chinese literature, medicine, geography, mathematics, and art as reference. And at the same time, he also borrowed ideologies from Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. So is it going to strike a code among Western readers? Are they able to understand? I kind of see this question a little bit like um, when we talk about adult and a child. Maybe if they sit down together, for example... Um, I like to read stories to my son, who's two and a half years old. And um, there are a lot of books that um, I can read with him where, as an adult, when I'm reading it, I can see a lot of subtle things happening in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can read things and understand things about the story that on one level, but that for my son, is maybe much more sim- he gets a much more simple pleasure from the story. But in a way, as two, we're two readers reading together one story with our different kinds of knowledge and our different background different ages but we can both have equal amount of pleasure from the same story even though we come to it with different kind of understanding Um, and also for a reader like like a child when they read they are everything that they read helps to build on their understanding and to uh, increase their knowledge and their broaden their perspective and so in a way, I also think about it like that. So a reader of Jinyong's um, writing in English, maybe they're a bit like the child who they don't necessarily pick up on all of the references or see all the layers of what's going on, the same mm-hmm. as a Chinese reader would. 
but it doesn't mean that they don't enjoy it and they're not getting something out of it. And then maybe it's actually by giving them access to reading it that they can then read more and build on that and increase their curiosity and keep keep building on their knowledge to become a reader who has more sophisticated uh, understanding of elements of classical Chinese thinking than maybe 10 years later they could come back to it and they would read it and read it in a completely different way. I think that's... Um, a really important thing. All good literature, in my opinion, good, a sign of something that's a good literature is that it opens up the space for this different kinds of levels of reading. And it is true that Jin Yong, what makes Jin Yong such an interesting and sophisticated writer is these many layers in his stories. But I'm sure that also when um, Chinese children first encounter Jin Yong, maybe age nine or something, they don't really read in all of the layers into those stories either and that uh, Chinese people when they go back to the stories later in life will see more in that those stories too and so I kind of think that we should just celebrate readings at all level because it all has something to contribute in it even if not all reading happens at the same level of sophistication maybe. Mm. That's, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And and I just feel like I want to ask you a quite cliche question, but I feel like I have to spill out. Who is your favorite character? Well, so my favorite is actually the a group of characters. I like the seven freaks of the South, the Jiang Man Qi Guan, because <laughs> I think they're very funny. Um, for me, they're kind of like... Um, they show they have the, they're very rounded characters in a way because they have both the very positive hero like you know they they want to do the right thing and they're very righteous and they they believe in the moral code of Xia and they are very like passionate but at the same time they also can be easily manipulated by their own kind of jealousies and arrogance and um, that they want to be the best and things like that so I think they make it makes them very relatable group of characters the way that they um, Cho Chu Ji can see an opportunity that if he just appeals to their more uh, human side, the fact that they they want to they want to prove themselves to be the best, and he can kind of manipulate them into spending eighteen years uh, doing a project to try and find uh, find Guo Jing. I think that's quite funny. Yeah, so, um, I like them. They're they're the ones that I feel uh, as a group of characters, you can really see almost all sides of like human nature in them through their different personalities in the group. Yes, and I think one of the appeals of Jin Yong's writing is, is about his characters because his, his characters are not all about black and white. There's some moral ambiguity about them. And personally, I don't know why, I kind of like the character Mei Chaofeng. I know she's evil, she's a villain in this book, but her love story, her loyalty towards Master kind of moved me when I was a child. Yeah, exactly, and I think that... Um it's interesting to think about Jin Yong's female characters because um, I think it's easy to assume that considering the period in which Jin Yong was writing and also the genre, that the female characters would all be kind of weak and they wouldn't be fighters and things like that. But actually, there are a lot of martial arts fighting women in Jin Yong's fiction. And I think that's quite fun and intriguing, the fact that they, um, they are like Huang Rong as well and Mei Xiaofeng, they can be extremely accomplished fighters yeah. and that they're not just patronized the, the fact that they're female, that then they, they won't be good at fighting. And not only that, but they can use their fighting. It's not just about strength, um, mm -hmm. but that a lot of the martial arts fighting is about sort of wit and intelligence and all that kind of stuff. So the, the female characters often are able to 
beat the much kind of stronger, older, more accomplished male characters because the sophistication of their fighting means they don't just use strength, they use all kinds of other elements, their creativity and their flexibility and all kinds of stuff in order to get to be able to win. And I think that's quite fun. As a, as a female reader, that's more satisfying. And the fact that also the female characters are not necessarily so idealized either. They have moments where they might be they may be they are loyal but they can also be attracted they they have their human you know instinct they can be attracted to another man other than their husband or they can acknowledge you know these conflicting feelings as well i think that it makes a more satisfying read yeah, I think that's the reason why compared with some traditional martial art writers Jinyu has a lot of female fans yeah i think so i think that uh, there is something there for every kind of reader because there's such a variety of characters and um, the fact that there's uh, there's more there's more to I think that also for example the fact that you see um, the main character Guo Jing he's um, ethnically Chinese but he's grown up among the Mongols um, and you can see the fact that he has this shared and divided loyalty that it's not so simple as to say that um, all the Chinese characters in the book are kind of only Chinese and the identity is very like fixed and not sophisticated and in fact Jin Yong shows a kind of different side like Guo Jin he's fluent in Mongolian he's grown up in a Mongolian environment in some mm-hmm. respects he is more Mongolian than he is Chinese yeah. um, and I think there's all those kinds of elements that make Jin Yong's writing very satisfying and kind of richer and it's not just the fact that he can incorporate lots of philosophical or other kind of cultural elements, but that the emotional worlds of the characters are very rich as well. Yeah, yeah, that's the reason why we all love him. And now, yeah. I, I know you, you have finished, you know, the translation of the first volume of Legend of the Kondo Heroes. So I wonder, when will the second volume come out? The second volume, my good friend Gigi Chang is, um, Zhang Qing, she's doing the, she's finished it and it's being edited at the moment um, and the edit will be finished very soon and then it will go into production to be released uh, early next year and then I am currently translating book three mm-hmm. um, and I'm doing that this year and then Gigi will start on book four this year as well. So we're, we're proceeding at full speed. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, when we talk about Legends of Kondo Heroes, and we also know it's usually regarded as a trilogy because we're going to talk about Guoqin and Yang Kang, two swan brothers, their, their offsprings, and what happened next. So do you have any yeah. plan of translating the other two? The British publisher has bought all, all three. So I guess it's 12 volumes of, across the whole Legends of the Kondo Heroes trilogy. So um, they have every intention to keep going, I think. So, yes. We've got another 12, 10 years, 12 years of work ahead. Shiri discussing Jin Yong, the famous Chinese martial arts fiction writer, with Anna Homewood, the translator of the English edition of Jin Yong's epic series, Legends of the Condor Heroes. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always interesting things taking place in the literary world. As such, we always do our best to try to keep you posted and updated. To learn more about us, follow us on our Facebook account, China Plus, or simply download the podcast by searching the keyword Ink and Quill on iTunes. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yang Yong. Talk to you again next week. Just one more time.
从此相依相。